Good morning. So good to see you all. I hope looking around, it looks like everyone found a seat. Praise God. That's a gift of His grace to us. So thankful to be able to uh, worship with you this morning and um, to just uh, begin our time uh, singing and exalting Jesus. Um, My name's Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. If I have not had a chance to meet you, I'd love that opportunity. Um, I do see faces that I don't know, and uh, I'll be right down here in front at the center of our room at the end of our time together, um, and would love that opportunity to meet you, to pray with you, to just, uh, just get to know you in some way. And so please make a point of that if you don't mind. Um, We are continuing in our study in the book of Acts. Um, If you are a guest with us, we've been working our way through this book for some many months now. And uh, we're going to pick up at the very end of Acts chapter 18. If you want to open your Bibles there now to the end of Acts chapter 18, I'll catch you up just very briefly. Last week, we looked at the beginning of the uh, 18th chapter of Acts and we saw Paul go to the city of Corinth, this very worldly city, um, the uh, port city where so much commerce occurred. Um, It was, as I said last week, the original sin city. Um, It was a a city of power and of marketplace and all of those things. And everything that we see today that we probably lament, there was even much more of that happening in Corinth. And Paul went there to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he was encouraged by Jesus himself. Um, We heard the words of Jesus to Paul that he received in a vision that while there's many challenges to the ministry that he has, there's many opposition that the world pushes back so strongly against what Paul is proclaiming in the hope of Jesus, Jesus said to Paul, go on, keep speaking, don't be afraid, keep speaking for I am with you. And Jesus made a promise to Paul to just continue to be faithful to him and to encourage him. And so Paul did that. And where we pick up here this morning, we're going to see Paul's continued ministry, this journey that he continues to proclaim the hope of Jesus. Um, If you know me well, a few of you might know this, that I enjoy cooking. Um, It's something that I enjoy doing for my family. It's something that I get a lot lot of fun in, experimenting, trying out different things. One of my favorite things that, um, at least in my family's eyes, I have perfected is my chili. Um, I like to make chili. It's a pretty simple process. I'm not going to tell you anything more than that. Um, But uh, I do enjoy it, especially in this wintertime on those cold evenings, to have a bowl of chili is something that... uh, will warm your soul, right? And so I also very often, like many of you, will uh, like to make cornbread to go along with that. And it's been a little while, but uh, many months ago, or probably now it's been years actually um, ago, I decided I was going to make cornbread from scratch, not the jiffy. I'm going the whole way in, I'm making it from scratch. And so I got the cornmeal and the flour and the the, the baking soda and and, and salt and sugar and all the ingredients, and I put it together and and I was so excited about this cornbread. Um, Put it in the oven, everything was looking good, pull it out, it looked amazing, smelled amazing, that little brown, that golden brown kind of had risen perfectly in my cast iron skillet, by the way, so it just, everything was just perfect, and I cut into that cornbread, and I was so excited, I mean, carbs are great, what's better than sweet carbs at that, and so you just know that this is going to be a good time, and so cut into that cornbread, take a bite of that glorious cornbread, and immediately, gross, Something had gone terribly wrong. A few of you picked up on my list of ingredients, and you heard me say baking soda, not baking powder. Those are two different things. I know that now, and now my cornbread is much better. 
What was intended to be great, what should have been a glorious enjoyment and indulgence, turned out to be really gross because it was missing one of the key ingredients. It looked like cornbread. It ta- not didn't taste like cornbread. It looked like cornbread. It, it, it baked up. It rose like cornbread. It did everything that the cornbread is supposed to do except for taste great. There was a missing ingredient. Perhaps if cornbread isn't your thing, you can refer back to a 12 and 5 football team that had everything looking appropriate to be continuing on and playing great, and yet there was a missing ingredient. As we look at the end of Acts chapter 18 and into the first seven verses of Acts chapter 19, we are going to see two different groups of people, specifically actually an individual and a group of people who were missing the key ingredient. They looked like disciples of Jesus Christ. They looked like God-fearers, worshipers of God, and yet there was something missing in their lives. And praise be to God... God would resolve that for them, would solve that problem for them, and they would receive that most important ingredient. So if you're able, out of reverence for God's word, would you stand as I read from Acts chapter 18, picking up in verse 18 through 19, verse 7. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincre, he had his, cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail for Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia... The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. We have not even heard of the Holy Spirit, that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized you with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men. In all. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word to us. Once again, as we do each week, we glorify you for the gift to be able to hear from you, to hear our God speak to us, to teach us, to instruct us, to us to even rebuke and correct us. Holy Spirit, would you have your way? Would you move in this place? There are those who, perhaps like Apollos, like these twelve, have heard of you, think well of you, but do not know you. As my brother prayed, 
Holy Spirit, would you let today be the day of salvation where many in this room meet you, Jesus. Believe in your name. Believe in the work that you have finished on the cross and the victory of your resurrection. Let today be the day of salvation, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So as we said, Paul had been in Corinth, and he stayed there for 18 months, and then he took his leave, and he is going to make his way back to Jerusalem, ultimately, go through Ephesus, and then on his way to Jerusalem, he has to depart from there. It says that he traveled, and he took Priscilla and Aquila, and he made his way first to Ephesus, and then on up to the church in Antioch. He makes this quick stop and drops Priscilla and Aquila off in Ephesus, and it says that he doesn't spend much time there, but in verse 21, it says that he would, if God wills, return to them. So then he left. At least one of the reasons that we know that Paul was on this journey to Jerusalem, we get a little bit of a picture of that, because it says that he had made a vow, and we have this note about Paul cutting his hair might be a little bit confusing to us as we read and we're trying to understand all that Paul is doing, but this vow is more than likely what's known as a Nazarite vow. Nazarite vow is as described to us, given to us in Numbers chapter 6 all the way in the Old Testament, and in that, as someone makes a vow, they are setting themselves apart to be used by God. And so Paul, it's believed he must have when he arrived in Corinth or at some point in time, made this vow that he wanted to be used by God, and the Nazarite vow was that he would not drink any wine, he would not even touch any or drink any food that came from the grapevine at all, that he wouldn't cut his hair, that he would abstain from many things, he wouldn't even go anywhere near the dead, including the Nazarite vow said, even if one of your family members dies, you don't go near them. And so this vow was a vow of being set apart to be used by God. But it says there that in Sincre, he cut his hair and he had to, according to the rules of the vow, take that hair and lay it on the altar in one place. And that was only in Jerusalem. And so this explains a little bit of Paul's mindset. I have the maps here that I've had over the last few months that show you a little bit of this. And so Paul leaving, he cuts his hair in Sincre. He realizes he's got to go back to Jerusalem. And so he sails first to Ephesus. He drops off Priscilla and Aquila there. And then the next map, we can see his journey that starts way over here in Ephesus. He travels, sails down to Jerusalem, then goes up to Antioch. The scripture says that he goes up to Jerusalem, by the way, because that was a way of noting that you were going up. When people went to Jerusalem, Jerusalem sits on a hilltop and they go up to the city of Jerusalem. And so this is a little bit of the lay of the land of what Paul is doing. He is clearly on a mission to be used by God and continue what Jesus had told him to do, to keep on speaking. Don't be afraid. And so he swings through Ephesus, and then he moves on, and he says, or the scriptures tell us, that in verse 23, after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all of the disciples. We essentially get in that text the end of Paul's second missionary journey. You've heard me say a few times now that he's on this very long journey. Paul would walk over 10,000 miles, taking the gospel all over the world. And this is the end of his second journey, and it's marked by a return to the mother church, Antioch, which was the first church that sent him out. Swings to Jerusalem, then he goes up to Antioch, more than likely reports all that he's done, receives an offering, receives some encouragement, receives financial things, all that he needs to continue in his ministry. Paul was on a mission, and we can read letters to churches that Paul planted that are included in that Galatia and Phrygia, the book of Galatians and Phrygia. We have other letters written by Paul to these churches that he planted on the tail end of this second journey. Well, while Paul is making this great journey, 
Luke records a reference to this man named Apollos who was in Ephesus where Priscilla and Aquila had been dropped off by Paul. Look at verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. If Paul was a man on a mission, Apollos could be described as a man on fire. It says that he was from Alexandria, and that's helpful to us because it explains how he was so well-educated. Alexandria was one of the centers of education, housed the greatest library in the history of the world where he could read and study and grow and learn. He, Alexandria, by the way, is where the Septuagint was written. That is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That was first written in Alexandria, again, the center of knowledge and education. And so Apollos being raised in that, he was very strong says that he was an eloquent, eloquent man, competent, again, in the, in the scriptures, and he was fervent in spirit. That word fervent really means he was a man aflame. He was passionate. Now, you'll notice that the S there in spirit is lowercase. This does not mean it's clear he wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit. He was a man who was passionate about Jesus. He was passionate about the way of God. He was well-spoken. He was passionate. And there was so much that we could esteem about Apollos. And yet, he was missing one thing. Many in this room who knew all about Jesus, but did not know Jesus. And there is a clear difference Many of us know all about Jesus. We know the story of Jesus. We understand the history and a little bit of his life, but we don't know Jesus. If you've been around for some time, you know this is the testimony of my life. I was raised in a church, went to church every time the doors were open, knew all about Jesus, but it wasn't until I was 18 where I came to know Jesus personally, and I know him. I can tell you that I know him because he's revealed himself to me. He's given me life. I know there are some in this room who likewise could say the same thing. Apollos was missing this knowledge of Jesus. This is why it says that he knew only of the baptism of John. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. What is this baptism of John? Well, we can pick up this from Mark 1.8, as well as if you were, have been with us for a long time, Acts chapter 1, verse 5, when we started this study in the book of Acts, John, it says, baptized with water. In Mark 1.8, that is what he says about himself, I baptize you with water, but there is one coming after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John was speaking about Jesus when he said that. And then Jesus in Acts 1, verse 5 says, John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. John baptized, John preached the Messiah's coming, looking forward to Jesus. And John said, repent and believe that the Messiah is coming. What Apollos was missing was the knowledge, was the understanding that Jesus had come, that the Messiah had arrived, that he was who he said he was. John preached repentance again, looking forward. And his disciples, those that followed Apollos and those that followed John, were people who were believers in God. But they did not know. They did not understand that the Messiah had come. And because they didn't know that the Messiah had come, they did not know the gospel. They could believe in God, 
but they could not know Jesus. They had not been filled with the Spirit, which happens when we are raised to life by faith in Christ. They didn't know that Jesus had come and gone to the cross, three days later taking up his life again. They didn't know that they themselves could be raised from the dead. In his book titled Soul Searching, published in 2005, sociologist named Christian Smith, professor at Notre Dame, identified through a tremendous amount of research at that time in history what the majority of the youth raised in Western Christianity believed. He did a study to understand what did young people raised in Western Christianity in our context, what did they believe about God? And he came up with a phrase or a title for this belief. You've heard me say this perhaps long ago. The phrase or the title, moralistic therapeutic deism. This is what Christian Smith in his book says that most people believe. They believe or they follow a way of life, moralistic, I should be good, therapeutic, so I can be happy, deism, and that's all that God wants. He would summarize this, I'll give you a little bit more clarity on this, with sort of five statements that summarize what most believe. And while this was applying to youth in 2005, those youth of 2005 are now mostly adults, and many in our churches all over the West follow this same idea. Perhaps you're here, I would believe that you're here because you need to hear this because this has been your belief system. And praise be to God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus might wreck your life this morning. This is what his research said most believe. A God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life. There is a God. They don't deny that God exists, and they believe that he's even involved in life. There's a belief that God wants people to be good, nice, fair to each other. They've been raised in our kindergartens to learn all of those things. These are taught values taught in the Bible, and we should follow those things. The central goal, third, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. The self-esteem movement, all of that is rooted in this, and you can hear that. Just be happy and be happy about yourself. Fourth, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Why do we not pray? Because we don't believe that God is needed until we face a problem and then we will run to pray. This is what we hope over the next 30 days that our church could rebel against, could push back against and say, no, we are going to be a people who acknowledge our complete and total dependence upon God and God alone. But most do not do that. They only turn to God when there's a problem. Finally, fifth, good people go to heaven when they die. This is the summary of what most in Western Christianity believed. Did you notice that missing ingredient? What wasn't included there? The name of Jesus. What was missing is the work of Jesus, what he did on the cross, his victory over death, his atonement for sin as he laid down his life to atone for sin and the power of the Holy Spirit at work. This is what is missing And this is what is missing from so many of our lives, that we follow this same idea. We might not do it intentionally, but if we really look at our lives, this is what we believe. We follow God. We believe in God. We trust that he is real. He's around. He's sort of involved. We turn to him when we need him. All we need to try to do is just be good. And if we can just be good enough, then we'll be happy enough. 
Well, friends, as you've heard me say, I think in probably the first sermon that I ever preached in this church almost 10 years ago, Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. That is what he does. That's what he came for. If you are settling for, with just being good, you are settling for something far less than what God would want to give you, what God would intend that you would have. Much of the, apart from our Western Christianity, other religions of the world, they proclaim just this moralism, just be good, be good enough. And if you know, like I know, I can't do that on my own. I can't be good enough. I will exhaust myself trying to be good. This, again, is the challenge of this belief system, this worldview. What Apollos did not know and what he therefore could not preach was the hope of the gospel. That Jesus went to a cross, raised himself from the dead three days later, sent his spirit to fill his people. Apollos was fervent in spirit, but he wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit because he had not put his faith in Jesus. He was passionate, it said, about helping the Jews who had been scattered around the world. He wanted them to know God. He wanted them to know the Messiah, but Apollos, at that moment in time, had truly not met Jesus himself. Maybe, again, that's you this morning. You have not met Jesus. You don't know him. Well, God was kind to Apollos in the same way that I hope you'll understand. You'll recognize God's kindness to you this morning. He sent Priscilla and Aquila. And notice what it says about them. When Priscilla and Aquila, in verse 26, Priscilla and Aquila heard him, Apollos, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They pulled him aside. They didn't yell at him. They didn't mock him. They didn't go into the synagogue and throw stones at him. They pulled him aside and graciously said, brother, you're clearly gifted, but let me tell you, I've got some good news. There's something missing in your message. There's something missing in your life, and that's knowing Jesus. And they shared the gospel with him. And Apollos recognized that in his greatness, in his ability to be as a great orator, as a speaker, as a, a well-educated man. Notice Apollos' humility to sit with two tent makers and let them explain to him what, they, what he had missed. That was a great day for the great Apollos. And that humility as he sat with Priscilla and Aquila, he listened and he found true life. And Apollos in that moment was raised from the dead. No longer striving to simply be a good man pointing to a Messiah, but truly knowing that Messiah. And it says we can know that this happened because in verse 27, he was asked by, he asked the brothers to continue in this ministry and to go out. And it says he wished to go across to Achaia. And so he goes to Corinth. The brothers encouraged him, wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived in Corinth, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed when Paul had been there. Paul left Corinth. Apollos was sent by God to go water the seeds that Paul had planted. And a great church rose up. A church that Paul would write these letters to. He had a highly effective ministry. We can know this again because in the Corinthian church, when Paul writes a letter, we see that there's this quarrel that some loved Apollos even more than they loved Paul. <laughs> they wanted to hear from Apollos more than Paul. Of course, Paul put that down. They wouldn't stand for that. But Apollos had a great ministry. Martin Luther, he believed that Apollos wrote the letter of Hebrews. Again, a great ministry followed after coming to faith, all because God sent Priscilla and Aquila to him, and he was humble enough to listen and believe in the name of Jesus so that he could know Jesus and be raised from the dead. 
Well, while this is happening, or just a little bit later, Paul, after leaving, of course, Corinth and going on that great journey, Paul begins his third missionary journey, and in verse 19, or chapter 19, he starts and makes his way as he had promised or had hoped prayed to God to come back to Ephesus. And it happened that while Paul, Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. This is the beginning of his third journey. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what were you baptized? And they said, John's baptism. Essentially, these disciples are struggling with the exact same challenge the same way that Apollos had missed it, now we have 12 disciples in Ephesus dealing with the same thing. They were missing the key ingredient. So Paul, like Aquila and Priscilla, pulls them aside and he told them about Jesus. He told them what he had done. And it says, when they heard this, John baptized with baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing that, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. They told, Paul tells these disciples about Jesus, and they were saved. And the Holy Spirit came upon them. There was evidence of their conversion. Real work of the Holy Spirit was done in their lives. Now these two, or this group, was given the gift by the Holy Spirit of prophecy and of speaking in tongues. These were gifts of the Holy Spirit that were given to them. Now there are some who wrongly apply this message or this text to believe that all believers will receive a baptism in the Holy Spirit that will follow with speaking in tongues and prophesying. One of the problems that we sometimes make with Scripture is where the Scriptures are being descriptive, we make them prescriptive. The Scriptures are describing what happened with this group of disciples when Paul led them to Jesus and when they were raised from the dead and they were given this gift and they were given that, those gifts for a purpose. We don't all receive the same gifts, but what, is, what we can learn from this text is they were given clear evidence. There was clear evidence of what Jesus had done in their life. There was evidence of their conversion. You may not have the gift of tongues or prophecy, but when you are truly raised from the dead... You will be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus promised us. And as we are filled with the Spirit, there will be evidence of God's work in our life. This is a test for us sometimes. Is there evidence that God is at work in my life? Can I see that? You want to know what that might look like? We can look at Paul's letter to that church in Galatia that he visited on that second missionary journey. Galatians chapter 5. Paul begins in chapter 5, or in the middle of chapter 5, he describes all of the challenges of the flesh. In verse 16, he says, I say, walk by the Spirit, that's capital S, Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. They're opposed to one another. We struggle. When we have been raised from the dead, there is a struggle. Yes, our flesh still rages within us, still pulls us, still tempts us, still tries to draw us into sin. But when we have been filled with the Spirit, there will be a desire, there will be an effort, a struggle that happens there. And the Spirit of God, by His grace and with His help, will give us victory over those things. And Paul describes what happens when we give in to our flesh. And for those of us, if we're not filled with the Spirit, how following the flesh leads to so much death. And then in verse 22, he describes... a. Scripture that you're probably most familiar with, Galatians 5, 22, the fruit, the evidence 
of the Spirit at work in our lives. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there's no law against those things. And those who belong to Christ, those who have been raised from the dead, who have been crucified, their flesh has been put to death, and they've been raised to life in him, they will have evidence of this fruit. I tell you that when I was 18 years old, I had known a lot about Jesus, but I finally came to know Jesus. When I came to know Jesus, the fruit of his Holy Spirit filling me began to manifest itself. Not perfectly, but more and more Day after day, week after week, year after year, as I spend time with Jesus and know him more and spend time in his word, there is evidence of this fruit. Some of you think of me in some ways as gentle. I know that's probably a little bit of a shock, but there's a few of you that may perceive me as gentle. That's not in my nature, friends. I am not gentle. I am not patient. Those are things that I, my flesh rages against, but by the power of the Spirit, I'm much more gentle today than I was 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Long ago, man, very long ago. That's, the, that's not me. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. It's what God has done. Some of you may say you're a gifted speaker. You're able to teach the scriptures. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That is a gift that has been given to me. And every single one of us, as we've been filled with the Spirit, have various and different gifts to be used by God. The question we have to ask, if we know Jesus, if we've come to know him, this Jesus that Paul proclaimed, that Priscilla and Aquila proclaimed, then there will be evidence of that. Is your life marked more and more by the work of the Spirit in your life? Do you have a desire for God's word? Again, not perfectly. There's going to be days you wake up and you're going to have to ask God, give me a greater desire. Is there a desire to seek him in prayer? Yes, The Spirit of God draws you close, a desire to know God, a passion for His kingdom to be used by Him in ministry. This is all work of the Spirit. Our flesh doesn't desire those things. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. There are some of you in this room who are living the same life that Apollos and these 12 lived. That if you analyze your life, you would recognize You've been striving, living under the law of moralistic, therapeutic deism. And God brought you here so you could be released from that, I pray, this morning. So that you could believe in Jesus. You're here to hear really good news. See, a God doesn't just exist that created in order the world and watches over. No, God exists who is actively involved in our lives. And he created everything on this earth to show us his glory That's the testimony of Colossians 1. God wants, some people would say, God wants you to just be good and nice and fair to each other as the Bible teaches. No, God doesn't want you to just be good or nice. He wants to raise you from the dead. You cannot be good enough. Some would teach you that the central goal of life, in fact, all of American marketing in Western, the Western world is teaching you that you just need to be happy. You need to pursue and do whatever would bring your own self-happiness. Scriptures teach us, and what Jesus, if you know Jesus, will teach you is that the goal of life isn't to be happy, to be filled with his spirit so that you can have joy regardless of the circumstances. This is the testimony of Psalm 16. God doesn't, some would say, God does not need to be involved in your life except for when he's there to resolve a problem. God, I'll just tell you, is not interested in being a part of your life. He's interested in giving you life. 
Some would say that good people go to heaven. The scripture would say there are no good people. We are all filthy rags, as the prophet Isaiah would describe. Filthy rags that through the power of Jesus, because of his grace and love, have been raised from the dead. To worship him. To live for him. So friend, you can't be good enough. If you've been white knuckling it through life, trying to hold on and just kind of get through life and get to the end hoping that maybe you'll be good enough, today is a day where you need to let go and you need to die. In the great providence of God, our brother Luke taught from Romans chapter 6 to the men in our ski trip this last week. And I want to read just a portion of that for you because it teaches us and it reminds us of what God intends to really do. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might, too, might walk in newness of life. God intends to raise us from the dead. We have to die. We have to let go of our life. And when we have died to ourselves and been raised to life in him, Paul says in verse 5, if we've been united with him in a death like his, if we have died, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We will know that the old self is gone. There will be clear evidence of the power of God in us. So, as we prepare to close our time together, I'd ask you, Will you die once so that you would never die again? Would you believe in the name of Jesus Christ? That he came, lived a perfect sinless life where we could not, took on the death that we deserve as he laid down his life on the cross. Three days later, he rose from the dead, proving that he was God and had victory over sin and death and that the grave could not hold him. And as we put our faith in him, we are given his life and that life is eternal to the glory of God the Father. And we too can be raised from the dead. Or will you just keep trying to get by, holding on? Don't be like the walking dead. Be raised to life this morning, friend. Repent, believe. Be people who will never die again. That's what I know. I know that Jesus that has promised me I will never die again. I invite you, I plead with you, would you believe that this morning? Thanks for joining us for the preaching of God's word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m., and we look forward to meeting you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God, the good of the city, and the hope of the world. Oh, oh you say.